Welcome to Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Nothing stops John Cedar. Nothing. When he lost his dominant hand to an accident at 18 years old, he trained his other hand to write, type, and draw, and make art, and surf, and rock climb. Yes, rock climb. We're talking the Grand Teton. Nothing stops John, not even a diagnosis of brain cancer. He got busy living deeper, louder, and bolder. In spite of radiation and chemo treatments, he's been busy creating murals to inspire and challenge people to do more and to be more. John is a graphic artist who specializes in graphic design and street art. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio in May 1988. He became fascinated with the art world of skateboarding, BMX, and graffiti culture when he was 13. In high school, he decided to pursue art as a career. After he lost his hand, he still graduated from Skidmore College in New York as a studio art major. He studied at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, then graduated from the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan with a master's in fine arts. John currently lives and works in Cleveland. He's here to talk about how to live a life without limits. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I go to Van Aken a lot. My uh, family lives in Shaker Heights, my grandkids. And we go to the new Market Hall place, and there's that giant mural that you painted. Tell us why you chose to do that piece of art that way. Well, the, the client, who is Van Aken, they wanted the mural to be as interactive as possible, which is a challenge in of itself because it's a flat wall. So I thought originally of trying to do an illusion. A lot of my influence comes from like um, vintage or Americana tattoo culture. So I was something about Coney Island and probably me living in Brooklyn, like the, the old school, like strongman posters. It just seemed to work along with the kind of lettering. So that lettering is I created myself. It's a knockoff of a Americana tattoo, but I added my own little pieces. And then yeah, I just, you know, I didn't want to put a specific skin tone color. So the blue was intentional. I wanted everyone to feel like they could approach it and not feel like it wasn't put there for them. So the cartoon, I guess, skin color was very intentional. That is a diverse area. And especially with recent things going on in our society, I didn't want to exclude anyone or even have that mural bring up that conversation because it, it's not what I'm trying to say in any means. Right. So the mural, for anybody who's not seen it, it's almost like muscle arms that are arms. You can stand in front of it and it's like you are, those arms are yours. Yeah. It's like sort of a redo of the, where you stick your head through the hole, you know, like a carnival and your image changes, so to speak. The words say together we are stronger. And why did you pick those words? I think it's (laughs) extremely true. In all the sense, I, I wouldn't be where I'm at if I, I didn't have, throughout all my challenges and successes, a group of people and individuals in my life that believed in me when I didn't. And I think more now than ever, community matters the most, especially in a time with the, the pandemic when we have to be separated. Humans are pack animals, really, historically. That's why they lived in tribes and it's a weird notion to feel very isolated when you're living in a city. You know, I never thought of it that way, that we are like, you know, they talk about dogs being pack animals, but sure. humans, and the idea of tribes being so much of our long ago history of, of hum, human beings. 
Yes, but I, I still think that instinct is there. You know, you want to be around people, you want to be around friends, family, and in this case, you kind of can't be, um, depending on your situation. How long did it take you to paint that? It's pretty big. I think it was four or five days, but a couple of those days it was still snowing, so I did what I could, and before the paint froze, um, <laughs> still <Paint> froze. <laughs> I, I didn't mind it completely because I was moving and moving ladders, but it, that, that was a challenge in the wind, especially. Uh, that's why I didn't choose spray paint. That's normally what I would work in, but I was scared if like there are gusts of wind that come around that building, it would just spray it across the building face where I shouldn't get paint and it's not <laughs> removable. So I didn't want to take that chance and then have to apologize to Van Aken about spraying. Yeah. <laughs> So, John, let's talk about the first kind of major detour in your life. It was your last with the high school. You went to a private school, university school. And like so many of us, I mean, myself included, we used to always kind of goof around with fireworks. I have five brothers and five sisters, and it's amazing that we're all still alive when I think of some of the crazy things we did. But you were with some guys, and you had firecrackers, some kind of explosive device, and it went off in your hand. Can you tell us what you're comfortable talking about that, that moment? You know, honestly, it was just an accident. I know a couple of the guys I were with, and these were guys I'd known for a couple of years. I rode BMX with them. I worked with them, actually, at the indoor skate park where I got hurt. I got hurt in the back parking lot. And it was after hours. We were all really over 18 at the time. So the owner and his son, who was also a senior in high school, would let us stay after hours to ride. I mean, it's not like we did anything bad. Right. Um, and it, it just was a happenstance. A friend of a friend that I had only met once before showed up with some fireworks and no one talked me into anything or anything like that. I think it was just, I wasn't, you know, 99% of the people get away with those things. And I was the unfortunate 1%. Yeah. That, that had to be taught a lesson. Well, but you know what, what I, what I want to make sure is clear is that we've, we've all, I mean, almost all, everybody. I don't think it's anything out of the order. It's not like any big deal. But for you, it was life-changing, like in, in, in a flash, literally a flash. It was a millisecond. Uh, I remember a lot of it. I'm not really uncomfortable speaking about it, but I mean, the important thing I took away, it really just astounded me just how fast everything can change. It was just like one naive decision as a guy going off to college, yeah. uh, to art school, and then in an instant, you know, I couldn't really ride BMX anymore. I, I was going to have to switch hands if I wanted to do art. And I sort of had me trying to figure out my life all over again. Obviously, I stuck with the art part, but um, it took a while to sort of find myself again in terms of uh, activities. I wonder about that time period when you kind of felt lost. Because, you know, when you get out of high school, there's this kind of blueprint of what you think is going to happen next. Sure. Year. Suddenly the blueprint's gone. So what helped you most during that time to kind of come to a new sense of what John's going to do now? I honestly think my my parents, uh, my brother, they never really told me, like, you got to switch what you're going to do. They never, ever in my life, I mean, within reason, stopped me from being me. And I'm way out there compared to what you think of most U.S. kids. I'm very tattooed and, you know, I chose art, not like a business or doctoral or lawyer kind of path. And 
you know, also I need to mention as well, my advisor from university school, Carl Frerichs, and my art teacher at the time, his name's Chris, oh, I'm blanking on his last name, of course. But long story short, they were basically the second people to visit me in the hospital at Metro Health. Mm-hmm. And Chris, my art teacher, uh, worked with me all summer and wouldn't take money to sort of relearn. I would, you know, and then I'd use on my own time, which was extremely boring, is take <laughs> articles from the newspaper and just copy them word for word to relearn how to write. I didn't quite ever fit in at US, but I, I think if it wasn't for like Mr. Frerichs and Chris Davis, I probably wouldn't have made it through high school. I wasn't traditionally interested in school. You found your niche and I love that art became your place and still is. Yeah, very much. It, it It's my outlet. It's sort of saved my life. It's hard to describe and really put it into words, but, you know, I was getting into trouble a lot my freshman year. I had very bad grade point average. And it wasn't like I did anything that bad. I just didn't like school. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Mr. Frerick set me down one day, and he's like, well, what do you like to do outside of school? So I like graffiti, and I like BMX. And not thinking he would respond in a positive way. <laughs> and he goes, well, let's get you into an art class and the hockey coach and I at US didn't always see eye to eye. And when you don't do team sports, you got to do weightlifting with him. So I was always the one to instigate him because it was just so easy to get on his nerves. And Mr. Frerichs actually set up, I could ride BMX for gym credit after school. So I was allowed to uh, go ride my bike for hours every day or skateboard and be me while at the same time still having teachers and people around me that cared about what happened to me. That's beautiful, John. And John, I wonder, uh, so you lost your dominant left hand. You had to learn to really make your right hand your dominant hand. When did you know, yes, I'll be able to do art again? Was there like a moment where you're like, (laughs) hey. I don't even think I still know that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say there was one clear moment. I think in time, my brain just sort of adapted. And I didn't really have a choice. You can't really tiptoe around the fact that, you know, when you lose your dominant hand, it's not like I can slowly ease into living as an opposite handed person. I just had to do it. And I figured out ways how to do things. And, you know, Skidmore College offered to give me a note taker and stuff. And I didn't take it because I also knew from my own experience, if I was given the out from having to pay attention, (laughs) I wouldn't pay attention. So it made me grow up in a lot of ways. Sure, sure. The other thing that I'm so amazed at is that you were into rock climbing. And four years after your accident, you had said to yourself, not going to be as strong as I used to be. Weren't sure you could do it. And you ended up quitting smoking because you wanted to get your lungs stronger. Tell me about how do you rock climb with one hand? How do you use that other arm? Is it part of your the tool for balance and pushing off? I mean, and and sort of, and it's not conscious. I I think sometimes in the moment I do things in a way that works for me. But if you had asked me like about doing that beforehand, I would have never thought to do it. My mind just kind of adapted to it. And there's still a lot of things I can't climb because of my condition, especially in a rock gym. I work at a rock gym one day a week, climb Cleveland and Tremont and you know, not a lot of those routes are something like realistic for me to do. And before when I was younger, I would sort of try and like kill myself trying to do everything because I didn't 
want to be limited. And as I got older and after some injuries with my neck and back, just from pushing so hard when I was a sponsored climber Mm -hmm. and doing things for companies that I sort of learned, you just got to accept your situation. And it's not always easy. I'm very stubborn. Sure. My mom can attest to that. (laughs) Um, But I think there's also, you know, you got to know when to push and you got to know when to back off. And that that's something I, I learned just trial and error, if I'm being honest. So when you were at your lowest, you know, you've lost your hand, you're going to wanted to be an artist. You, everybody's probably going off to college and you're in a hospital figuring it all out. When you were at your lowest, is there anything that helped you the most? You talked about your support of your family and friends, but is there anything you kind of had to draw from within you that like, rebooted you I just kept looking forward I don't know why it's just sort of how I've always been I guess and I didn't learn that really until I lost my hand and was seen as uh I guess different Mm -hmm. in a sense it is interesting because the time I lost my hand was sort of the height of the Iraq war and Afghanistan war so a lot of people assume I'm a veteran I'm not it's a bad accident and I never would say I was it took a while for me to feel comfortable with myself. And I love that idea of looking forward because so many of us look in the rearview mirror. What if I had this, all the what is, and they just stay stuck, but you just like, let me just, all right, this is who I am now. Let's move on. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I tried for probably about three or four years after losing my hand to still ride BMX and it just wasn't happening. I was trying to develop prosthetics and it just got expensive because health insurance doesn't want to cover those things. And the technology is just not there. It's kind of crazy, like all that your body can take. I would break prosthetics doing simple tricks just because your body would um, like know how to absorb that impact through all the muscles and tissues. And a prosthetic's rigid. It's metal and carbon fiber. And it's incredibly hard to mimic what a hand can do. Right. John, I want to talk a little bit about your, you ended up teaching art. You got an opportunity to be an artist in residence at the Cleveland School of the Arts. So yep. you took, you, you got your hand back, your right hand to be creative. And here you are in the inner city teaching kids. What was that experience like for you? Oh, that was awesome. Um, and I sort of fell into that. I was uh, working at a, a different local rock gym at the time, sort of stepping away from my sponsors and just politely bowing out. It's just, I was burned out and sort of disillusioned uh, with the industry at the time. And a current member at that rock gym said, hey, you know, you're an artist. I said, you know, you should come teach, like try teaching an art class. And I'm like, I don't have a teaching degree. He goes, but you have a master's, so it doesn't matter. Like you're you're not going to be a a district art teacher, like an artist in resident. And I was hired four days before the school year started, having never done this before let alone with high school kids in a inner city high school, mm-hmm. uh, kids with very, very real issues every day and in their communities. Right. And I just sort of felt like jumped into it and I just had my style. And I think I'm not probably what you would picture as a normal teacher. And I think the kids sort of saw that. And it, it just, you know, as time moved on, I, those kids felt like they were my own kids. And I'm still in touch with some of them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had one student who would call me dad as a joke, mm-hmm. but like, 
I taught a street art class, so I was kind of also in my element. And if you behaved, you got to use spray paint. So it was like, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you know, normal is highly overrated. They probably love somebody like you that could come in there and really you know, meet them where they're at. When I left after my second year, when I moved down to Florida for a bit, you know, one of my students said it's a big loss because it's the only place that the kids felt like they could be themselves. Um, I wasn't really big on, you know, within reason censoring kids and a lot of the themes we explored had to very much do with issues in our city, like, unfortunately, police brutality, racism. Right. And, you know, I let the kids express themselves. If they had a reason behind doing something, I'm not going to stop them. And I told the principal straight up, if they need to get this out, it's better they do it on a painting versus more healthy way on the street. (laughs) That is a good point. Well, John, we are at the halfway mark already. I want to pause and I want to thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. We have John Cedar as my guest today. I know you have many podcast choices and I'm really grateful you chose to listen to mine. John, let's move into, you moved to Florida, you're in St. Petersburg, and you started to get migraines. Tell us about your health journey, how that started. I honestly thought just me growing up in the North and it's like so heavy and humid down there. I wasn't used to it. Mm -hmm. I always assumed I'd take some Excedrin if it was bad enough, drink more water and it would go away. So I never thought anything of it. Um, And that would happen on and off when I was working in the school I worked in for a year down there. It was a much more high stressful environment. It was a behavioral unit basically. Mm-hmm. So for really troubled kids, and it was elementary school, but just kind of like not having any support in terms of like your coworkers are tired, the administration is trying to just keep the district off their back. As long as it looks good on paper, they're okay with it. Right. And my migraines got worse during that, and I just figured it was from the stress. I mean, again, I, I really did care about those kids. I have 500 students, you know, and yeah. taught every single one of them. And I knew every single one of them by name. It was hard. A lot of my kids were in the system. Mm-hmm. And being in foster care, you're just transferred sort of around the county. So I would have students switching all the time. There was no consistency. Or I'd have students that didn't speak English. I can't remember quite what happened, but something happened in South America. So we had an influx of a couple students to my school specifically from I believe it was Ecuador and Guatemala, no English, but they also, what I didn't know in my own sort of naivete is there are still villages that have traditional languages there. So my Spanish speaking students couldn't even communicate with them. And I had to find a way with, on my own is yes, a, a white guy with no Spanish skills right. communicate, let alone the Spanish is irrelevant because it's a village dialect. It, it was challenging in a lot of ways, but I wouldn't change that experience. I mean, they're good kids just in unfortunate situations. And I taught sort of the older versions of them. Yeah. I just had to learn how to communicate with younger minds. Like a high school kid, you can reason with. A little kid, right. you got to get out in about three three words or you've lost them. Right. So so in this time, you know, you're, you're doing all that and it's a lot to juggle. But you're getting these migraines. And then one night you had a seizure. Yes. Uh, year ago, actually, this okay, weekend. Okay, a year ago. And uh, that's when they found a mass. Yeah. They did a CT scan when I was brought into the ER. So that's another moment, that millisecond moment of, you know, they come to you and tell you, were you alone when you found out or was your girlfriend with you? 
I don't actually quite remember. Okay. I was pretty out of it for a while. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they told me until the next day, but I didn't also think I, I didn't understand the big deal. I thought it was just a tumor. I didn't really understand what that meant in its entirety. Right. And you're like 31 at the time, right? Last year, 31? Yeah, 31. Just turned right. 31. And you've got your, you're like deep into life helping these students and suddenly you have a mass about the size of a softball in your front frontal lobe. And yeah, right you, everything's going to change here. Glioblastoma, is that the technical diagnosis? They brought it up in Florida, but again, they didn't, all they did was a CT, so they couldn't confirm it. I mean, the ER doc and the uh, neurosurgeon that was at the hospital I was at in St. Pete said, you really have to, you know, get it out and see what it is. The hope was, is that it wasn't going to be as bad as it is because I'm young. Mm -hmm. But again, they couldn't say either way because they would have had to have done the surgery and they didn't feel like they were equipped to do that. And basically the, I think it was the ER doc. I can't quite remember, but told my mom, he's got to be at a cancer center for this. So you came back home to Cleveland where we have the world renowned Cleveland clinic. Thank goodness. We have great health care in Cleveland and you uh, had surgery. They got as much as they could, but brain cancer is different. They don't have clear borders. I understand like you other. No, it's sort of like tentacles. It spreads throughout. So even though they got what they wanted out of there's still very much remnants of it in me. So what kind of treatments have you had to have that, you, that you've been through these last um, So yeah, about maybe a month or so, yeah, almost to the day after my surgery, I started six weeks of radiation, five days a week, every day. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, seven days a week, taking um, Temidar, which is the chemotherapy used for brain cancer. Okay. And I wasn't too affected. By the end of it, I got pretty, I was pretty tired and they said that was normal. So I'd sleep most of the day just because of the radiation in combination of chemo. I got a month off, which was nice. Started to kind of feel normal again. And then I started, I think it was six rounds of chemo. And then they added the Optune device. I think that's something you wear on your head. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, I have to keep my head shaved, but it's like tumor treating fields. And basically from my very limited understanding, <laughs> it disrupts uh, the cells from replicating. Whatever, like it's, I think it uses magnetic fields. So it's not like a pocket-sized radiation thing. It's like, you know, and I don't really have side effects from it. Okay. It sends out kind of electric? Yeah. And they're like stickers. I mean, they're adhesives. I mean, I got to take them off, put, you know, and then yeah. change them out, reshave my head about every two days. Okay. It's honestly not the worst thing in the world I you know I agreed to do it and I would have to be honest like after I got fitted and started wearing it I was like I already have one hand why did I add something else to hang off of me you know like <laughs> a battery pack that uh right. get oh you have to wear a battery pack too oh, oh yes it changed the battery if I'm not plugged in so it's like everything changed again with the treatment piece then it's like I can't take off for a week to go climb or go surf. I have to be aware of how long the thing's off of me because they want it on all the time. I mean, it's really only effective if you wear it 18 hours a day. And then I need someone to help me get it back on. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, because I can't get it. There's like a specific map they did to my situation. So everybody is a little bit different way that the uh, the arrays or stickers are laid out. It can be a pain sometimes. 
So you had some rough chemo that you lost like 45 pounds. Yeah. About 35, 40. I think. You're not yeah. a big guy. I mean, that's a lot of weight to lose. Yeah. That was, uh, wasn't on purpose. I just, <laughs> right. I would say a lot of it happened the first round when they first upped my chemo dosage. Mm-hmm. I just, I was so not affected or made sick by like the initial six weeks. I, I didn't realize upping it. And then they literally up doubled it again after that. Cause I had to be at, I guess, a certain dosage for my body mass. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, the first three days, cause I'd take it five days on and 28 days off. So it was like these weird 28 day cycles. Right. Yeah. By the time that 28 day sort of was coming to an end, I'd actually feel sort of normal again, but then I had to go back on. Yeah. And so it was a lot of like ups and downs physically and mentally. And I'm, I used to be a pretty active person. And so it's been, I'm getting better at it, but just balancing, you know, treatments with living my life. Mm -hmm. Now glioblastoma, it's, it's one of the, I hate to say scary cancers, but it is, they don't have a great prognosis. How do you, how do you kind of make peace with that, that big unknown? I mean, we all have some kind of expiration date in our lives and nobody really knows when it is, but you know, when you get that kind of diagnosis, how do you kind of go on like planning a future, but really not knowing how long do you get? Do you know what I mean? It's hard to say. I mean, some days I don't think about it because I do hear a lot of people living a lot longer and then, you know, sometimes falling asleep. It's like, wow, like, you know, I'm coming up on technically when most people would be dead, you know, after a year to 12 to 18 months. And I'm hoping that obviously isn't me, but you just don't know. I mean, really, I, w- I only can wear the Optune until it stops working. Right. So if my tumors start growing back or growing elsewhere in my brain, then there's no point for me to wear the Optune anymore. And I don't know what the next step is. I haven't asked because I really hope it doesn't hit that point. I hope there's some treatments that come along where I don't have to experience that situation. Right, right. So, John, in the meantime, you're still creating. I mean, you're. Yeah. Do you feel like more of a fire in you to create, or is your has it the cancer treatment changed anything about how you do your art? Yeah, I would say a lot. Before this situation, I kind of fell back on teaching and, you know, it was sort of like, oh, I'm not that good. So I'll just not take that risk in a sense. And then I don't know when I got diagnosed, I just wanted to see what I could do with it. So, you know, hoping I can prove myself in a sense more to myself than anyone else. Well, like you're leaving your mark in, in huge ways. You have a mural in Edgewater that you painted on the banks of Lake Erie. You have the one in Shaker Heights. I I hear you're working on a third 12 by 25 foot indoor mural at the music settlement. Oh, that was the second one I did. So I finished that one up. Yeah. Edgewater was the most recent and um, I got that up in a few days. It just around, cause it is right on the water almost. I had to figure out a good sealant just so it's protected. Normally I wouldn't do that. Uh, the next mural I have coming out is actually in Chattanooga, Tennessee, at the beginning of October. So you're going to go down there to paint it? Mm-hmm. About a, I think, 24 by 23 foot wall. So when you're painting, when you're painting a, a giant wall like that, are you like in a zone that's different than the cancer zone, like back home kind of? Yeah. Do you feel like you get to climb into like a different world, so to speak? 
Kind of, yeah. I mean, I have my headphones and I'm in my own world and it's peaceful. And, you know, I'm just focused on um, what I think is the right steps to take for the mural. So I, you know, I'll break it down into sort of doable steps. And then depending on actually what I have to do. And, you know, from there, that's really all I'm concerned with is, you know, meeting those sort of deadlines I've given myself. I mean, I can get a wall up. Edgewater went pretty quick. I mean, that was like three days. And what did you paint at Edgewater? Can you describe it for people who won't be able uh, to? It's like abstracted waves. It's on my, already up on my portfolio, my art okay. website. We'll I'm have really... a link to that on my website too at the end of the show. I'll mention that. And the one you're doing in Chattanooga, what's the theme? Do you have a, like in your mind how it's going to play out already? Yeah, so uh, the one in Chattanooga, the Edgewater one was more open. I think um, the the husband and wife I did it for, it, they're, they're water people, so they wanted some sort of water theme. And that works for me because I surf. I surf on the lakes and stuff in the winter. And that one sort of came together organically. The one I'm doing in Chattanooga is my a buddy of mine who I met when I was doing the uh, adaptive climbing competitions. And we had a couple of overlapping sponsors. But his day job is uh, building prosthetic legs. He was originally in Orlando, moved to Tennessee, and opened his own prosthetic business in I did his logo and branding and all that stuff. And he really wanted the mural, but this is more in a sense to be uplifting to people going through very dramatic changes in terms of amputations. So I've been working on some concepts and I haven't, we haven't narrowed it down to one just yet, but basically it's trying to celebrate journey of healing and whatever sense that is. What I like is what you did in Shaker was really kind of like finding your strength again and helping people kind of feel strong. And this one is about healing. It seems like there's a bit of your life kind of timeline or your life flow in your art. Does it feel like that to you? Kind of, I guess. I think it's just the clients I've had. But it feels true to me, and that's more what I care about. Like if someone hired me to do something that I knew wasn't right for me, I'd tell them that. Yeah. So, John, we just have a couple minutes left. I wonder, like, what kind of things do you do for yourself every day that really help you kind of go through everything you're going through and a lot of the unknown that's that's ahead of you? You talked about kind of moving forward, and forward is kind of a big unknown. So what things do you do that help you stay present and really just kind of live joyfully whatever is going on? Well, if I do this every day, but, I, I, you know, I try and do it, be active. It's a little bit more challenging now. Uh, just working around the Optune and having to switch stuff out. You know, if I get a chance, I'll ride my bike. That brings me a lot of peace. And it, I mean, I don't ride BMX anymore, but I still like red bikes. It depends, you know, like last week and I went surfing with some friends and activity helps sort of center me, I guess you could say. And that's always been that way since I was a kid. But I also, it's important to me that I draw every day. Not even like I'm talking in terms of for designs for clients or anything. I, you know, I've been doing just sketchbook stuff, things I want to sort of challenge myself with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I, I'll come up with these weird ideas and try and make it happen. Like a while back, I turned a Caravaggio painting into a tattooable design of a, his Medusa one. But I don't know. I just wanted to see if I could do it. It wasn't like a, 
for any reason other than I wanted to do it. And yeah. when I'm doing that, it, you know, it, it brings me peace. You're also wearing a hat from your Pebble Wrestler Collective. Occasionally we'll release apparel and design stuff. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll close. So what is the, when you say Pebble Wrestler, it's a nickname for climbers? Is that what that is? Uh, it was like a nickname years ago for a, a type of climbing known as bouldering, which is like unroped. You climb boulders, not big cliffs. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of where I focused my climbing career. And I, I felt like a lot of times, and I still feel this way, the industry is getting so serious and sort of like Hollywood. Like, you know, when I was younger, climbing movies and stuff, I mean, no one did this stuff. So I was like really out there. I think there's maybe three of us in high school or under mid-20s that climbed at the Cleveland Rock Gym when I was in high school. And I did that as well. Uh, obviously, I had both hands then. But... I just wanted to bring back that fun element with solid designs and comfortable clothing. And I try and pull influences from art history if possible. Uh, So color and everything is intentional, but yeah, it was sort of my way to, just in a weird way, not make the, what the company side of it was become so exclusive um, and bring it back to what it used to be. And it was really just a bunch of us, having fun climbing rocks and the woods. I mean, yeah. it didn't matter how good or bad you were. You know, there weren't all the magazines or Instagram didn't exist. So, right, right. You could just, it was for the pure joy of it, it sounds like. Yeah, and I'm trying to kind of bring that back, build a, a collective of artists, uh, snowboarders and climbers and produce apparel that hopefully people like wearing. That sounds great. Well, John, I got to close. Uh, my biggest takeaway today is that idea of, of really looking forward, moving forward and not spending too much time in that kind of rear view mirror of life. And I always ask my guests um, to close with the answer to this question. What is the best thing you do every day for yourself to create a life you love out of the life you have? I think the best thing I do every day is force myself to keep being creative and, you know, thinking of different crazy ideas I want to create because I just, it's the idea I had for the day. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I think that's for me, at least I can't speak for others, but that's, it keeps me excited about life. That's beautiful. Well, John, thank you for sharing your journey with us. And I can't wait to see more of your art around Cleveland. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening to little detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.